Coming to you from the Outer Mission, this is Monkey Block, a storytelling podcast focused on San Francisco's golden past, 1849 through 1906. I'm your host, Girlina. The stories are closely based on newspapers of the time, historical books, and journals. Disclaimer, I do my best to research and share the real stories, extracting legends or calling them out. Now, let's go back in time. As I do research for episodes, sometimes I run across a study or a book that grabs my San Francisco pre-Gold Rush attention and interrupts where I wanted to go for the next episode. We're really close to the Gold Rush, dear listener. I promise I'll get there. Today's episode is based on a magnificent rabbit hole, which brought me closer to understanding early Yerba Buena that touches on that portion of this exposed seawall I mentioned two episodes ago, located in the basement of a cocktail lounge at 582 Washington Street. Today's episode, aka The Rabbit Hole, is largely based on a peer-reviewed publication. Kyler Conrad and others, Hyde, Tallow, and Terrapin, Gold Rush Era Zoo Archaeology at Thompson's Cove, San Francisco, California. The shortened abstract for this paper, I hit the jackpot. Zoo Archaeological Investigations at Thompson's Cove, San Francisco, a Gold Rush Era site located on the original shoreline of Yerba Buena Cove, provide evidence of the maritime California hide and tallow trade and consumption of abundant wild game in Alta, California. This diverse assemblage, dating primarily to the 1840s through 1860s, allows rigorous investigation into the economic and subsistence activity of San Francisco in the pre-Gold Rush era. Oh, that was poetry. This study was from a 2006 to 2013 archaeological investigation during the renovation and seismic retrofitting at today's The Battery, at 717 Battery Street, previously known as the Musto Building from 1907. San Francisco history enthusiasts like me already know about Clark's Point. But how many people know about Thompson's Cove? It appears it's not just people who disappear from history. With my episode preface done, here we go. The local commerce in Yerba Buena Cove was based on hide and tallow trading with the incoming ships from Boston and England. The trading commerce mostly kept a low profile to avoid the high taxes, and I believe that was a $400 total value of what could be bought, which is what encouraged trading versus purchasing. That's called smuggling, but it was a well-known secret that our local San Francisco district government participated in. Monterey, not so much. El Pueblo de Yerba Buena was a half-mile indented cove where at the most northern point, the Loma Alta Hill came sharply down into the water. During low tide, this is where small boats could land. On the southern end of the cove, we had a less popular landing spot, El Punto del Rincón, protected by another range of hills where, at high tide, boats could land. But the northern part of the cove was certainly a better landing spot, and therefore more popular. 
The middle inside of the cove was shallow and at low tide uncovered about a quarter mile of mudflats. In 1838, the Yerba Buena northern landing spot for ships specifically had a little bay, a cove within a cove called Thompson's Cove, located at the northeast corner of today's Sansom and Pacific Streets. Collectively, this area was known as Punto del Embarcadero. Are you curious about the Thompson behind Thompson's Cove? I know I was. I didn't just want to know about the cove. I wanted to know about the person. Here comes the rabbit hole. The Beginnings of San Francisco, Chapter 15, The Village of Yerba Buena. In 1831, Alpheus Basil Thompson lived in Santa Barbara with his wife, Francisca Carillo, and their children. Francisca is the daughter of the Alta California governor, Carlos Carillo. Thompson had a trading business between California and China, so from Santa Barbara, he ran a trading post and traveled to Monterey, the Bay of San Francisco, to the Sandwich Islands, that's Hawaii, and to China. I believe that was his travel path. In 1833, as part of the smuggling at Yerba Buena Cove, Thompson had his ship seized right there in Yerba Buena. I'm going to guess someone from Monterey came up or followed a lead when they seized Thompson, his entire staff, and the cargo. They were detained at the shore for several months until large bonds could be secured for his release. Now, you would think Thompson would have had enough of the Bay of San Francisco and Yerba Buena Cove after that unexpected stay. But no. In 1838, Thompson returns to the hair of the dog, and opens up a proper hide and tallow business in Yerba Buena, while still living at both Santa Barbara and Yerba Buena. He started what was called a hide house at a specific spot at the cove, which dealt with cow processing and sea otter hunting for their pelts. Thompson knew there was money to be made in Yerba Buena. I mean, during his unexpected stay at the cove, he had several months to analyze the traffic. For the next nine years, this area of Yerba Buena Cove was known as Thompson's Cove. After that, it was known as Clark's Point. I'll say a little bit more about that later. Thompson's Cove, unlike the rest of the Yerba Buena shoreline, was rocky, made of sandstone bedrock of Franciscan formation, with bay mud sediment on top. This is kind of interesting. Franciscan sandstone was once called San Francisco sandstone. The rest of the Yerba Buena shoreline was mostly mudflats, and mudflats best describes the majority of the original Yerba Buena shoreline before landfill. Thompson's Cove was advantageous with its rocky shoreline and shallow cove, which allowed small boats to land at low tide. And the tides at this location were from 6 to 18 feet deep, which was true prior to wharves being constructed. Thompson's Cove, with its wave-cut platform in the bedrock and rocky shoreline without mudflats, explains why other spots along the cove required larger ships to dock much farther out from the shore. That all makes sense now. So that wave-cut bedrock became the identifier for Thompson's Cove, known to the whaling and trading ships as the most stable spot for small boats and large ships to land. 
and explains why Yerba Buena's earliest cultural artifacts are found in this location. Thompson's Cove, like the majority of the rest of the cove, remained landfill-free until 1853. So the recovered cultural artifacts were mostly prior to the gold rush. Said another way, the mudflats on top of the bedrock stored archaeological fragments of Yerba Buena's pre-gold rush past, becoming a time capsule for discovery in 2006 to 2013. Talk about going back in time. Some of the recovered items at Thompson's Cove were accidentally lost and other items were intentionally discarded during the trading and loading from the smaller boats to the larger ships. An example of accidental loss was a sealed wood barrel with 11 full bottles of beer that was found as part of this study. I'll assume no one meant to throw away beer. The whaling and trading ships from Boston and England would come to trade with the locals at Yerba Buena. The cow products were brought to the shoreline for secondary butchering and for the hides to be processed for leather and the tallow for candle soap and cooking. The primary butchering, specifically for meat consumption of the choice parts of the cow, happened elsewhere, likely at the nearby ranchos. The excavated artifacts at Thompson's Hide House at Thompson's Cove showed evidence of secondary butchering, uncovering partial skeletal fragments indicating butchering for soup cuts and salting meat. But entire carcasses were also discovered, indicating hide and tallow processing. Interestingly, the skeletal remains were mostly cattle, yes, but also elk and deer. The dating shows that elk was more heavily butchered pre-gold rush, which was because elk tallow was considered superior to cow tallow. Who knew? So cattle, elk, and deer mandibles and femurs were excavated, along with crab, clam, mussel, oyster, and abalone shells. I bet it smelled great at low tide. Actually, Yerba Buena mudflats were a common dumping ground for both locals and the visiting ships, so much that in 1847, a local law banned killing vultures and similar birds who would take away the animal remains at low tide. Yeah, you don't want to kill those birds. But I digress. Thompson's Cove became an important stopping point for incoming ships because it was easily identifiable from the ocean. But if you look at early maps of Yerba Buena, near the center of the cove, there is a distinct inlet, a Laguna Salada, that's a saltwater lagoon, that you'll see on maps. This inlet jutted into the middle of prime Yerba Buena real estate between current-day Montgomery and Sansom, Jackson, and Washington. There was also a smaller freshwater lagoon nearby, but we aren't discussing the smaller lagoon. Prominent people live just southeast of Thompson's Cove, but this albatross of a saltwater lagoon had to be navigated to get to Thompson's Cove. They would have to jump over the narrowest part of the lagoon, 
when possible, or wade through the water or take a small boat to get to Thompson's Cove. The prominent people were Richardson, Lees, past and current Acaldes like Noe, Vallejo, Guerrero, Sanchez, and Hinckley, and important businessmen like Speer, Leidesdorf, and Jacques Viauget, the owner of the very popular Viauget's Saloon. Viauget needed to procure spirits to the locals. An obvious question is, why did they wade through the lagoon or take a boat to travel five city blocks? That's because Yerba Buena wasn't naturally flat in the 1840s. The still remaining California inhabitants lived near the Presidio and the Mission or on the surrounding ranchos where land was conducive to cattle raising, but the Yerba Buena residents lived where they could inside the boundaries of the town. Now, collectively, this was all called the District of San Francisco. In his 1869 book, The Golden Americas, John Tillotson described Yerba Buena as a lump of baker's dough which has been kneaded into fantastic hills and valleys, which, after having been worked, had been forgotten for so long that green mold began to creep all over it. He's discussing the unpassable five-block walk, which, as you see it today, is a flat, easy walk. Okay, so it's hard to get to Thompson's Cove. Why didn't they build their homes closer to Thompson's Cove? Well, at Yerba Buena's infancy, there was only one part of the shoreline that was flat enough to build homes, and that was in the southeastern part where these prominent people built their homes. Thompson's hide house was at an even smaller area, literally on the edge, that allowed for the building of a small structure. In 1844, Acalde William Sturgis Hinckley, Yerba Buena's first American elected Acalde during Mexican rule, which is not to be confused with Washington Bartlett, Yerba Buena's first American Acalde under American rule, also lived in this southeast uh, region of the lagoon with all the other prominent people. Hinckley had enough of navigating this albatross of a lagoon and planned Yerba Buena's first civic improvement. Now keep in mind for this next part that in 1844, it was called Thompson's Cove and was not renamed Clark's Point until 1847, which dates this quote from 1847 or later. In 1844, he was a calde. That's Hinckley. And built a little bridge across the neck of the Laguna Salada at Jackson Street thus enabling the citizens to pass to Clark's Point without going around the Laguna. This was the first street improvement work in Yerba Buena. Again, this quote was from 1847 or later after the renaming of Thompson's Cove to Clark's Point. There's more to say about Clark's Point, but that's another rabbit hole I'll spare you from. So Hinckley, via this footbridge, is responsible for the first civic improvement in Yerba Buena. The footbridge was the biggest thing to happen to Yerba Buena. It was a huge deal at the time. So big, in fact, people traveled from the neighboring towns to view this bridge and to jump up and down on it to test the sturdiness. I wouldn't have tested the bridge that way, but 
Perhaps it wasn't too far to fall if the bridge didn't pass the jumping test. I have a link to an article on Yerba Buena's first civic improvement um, in the transcripts. This bridge is more than Yerba Buena's first civic improvement. This footbridge opens up this growing part of town and allows for more development that caters to the exclusive group of Yerba Buena and soon-to-be San Francisco's founders. The common Joe or Jose did not live inside Yerba Buena's boundaries. The sitting alcalde decides who gets a 200 or 100 vada lot inside the town's limits. But the largest demographic of Yerba Buena inhabitants was quickly becoming foreign settlers. This is another way of saying only settlers or Californios of stature lived in Yerba Buena. The less affluent Californios continued to live farther away at the decaying Presidio, the decaying Mission, or at their ranchos. And the Ohlone? After the mission secularization, given a choice, they mostly left the immediate area. They tried that one already. For reference, these prominent Yerba Buenans built their homes near the heart of the Pueblo, called La Plaza Grande, that would soon be renamed Portsmouth Square. La Plaza is the tiny financial district of Yerba Buena and actually remains very close to today's financial district. This saltwater lagoon is literally across the street from a muddy shoreline that would be filled and become the infamous Montgomery block. But for where we are right now in time, it's just a muddy shoreline. This is still Alta California, and Yerba Buena is still Mexican territory. But Yerba Buena is being shaped by and for the American settlers who are not quietly establishing their footing in Mexican territory, which is the liveliest port in California. And the local government is granting them favors with open arms and smiles, expecting the good times to continue, even if Alta California passes hands to the United States. Recall the exposed seawall at 582 Washington Street? In 1844, the High Horse Lounge would sit on muddy shoreline, being just a few feet away from the Laguna Salada and the footbridge. To look at the seawall today, you can see water stains on a particular corner of the wall, on the corner of Hotaling Place and Washington Street. The alley is really cute, but somehow strangely placed. The alley is placed exactly where the Laguna Salada was located. Hoteling Place, by the way, was originally known as Jones's Alley, should you decide to research it. Now that I know about the history of this part of Yerba Buena, the Laguna Salada, and the footbridge just a few feet away, I think about the definition of a lagoon a stretch of salt water separated from the ocean by a low sandbank. And another rabbit hole in three, two, one. The Laguna Salada was eventually filled in 1848. So let's assume the footbridge was collapsed and used to fill the lagoon. If they filled the lagoon, they no longer need the bridge. Now, that is speculation on my part, but it makes too much sense. So... 
the lagoon was filled to the shoreline in 1848. But I know that landfill for the shoreline in this exact location of Yerba Buena Cove didn't start until 1853, five years after the lagoon was filled. So it's possible the disassembled bridge filled the lagoon, but it's a lagoon, so there's a sandbar blocking the water from going directly into the Pacific Ocean. Did the sandbar become Jones's Alley in 1853 with the landfill? This is more speculation on my part, but did part of that bridge go on to become the earliest attempt at a barrier to the sea placed just behind the sandbar? I know in 1848, we still don't have a proper seawall in this immediate corner of San Francisco, but in 1848, the lagoon is filled. Overall, landfill hadn't occurred yet because, I know this, because across the street, the Montgomery Block wasn't built until 1853. But as I continue to dive into this specific corner and consecutive years of Yerba Buena in San Francisco history, the mention of a seawall is bound to come up. Through more serendipity related to the seawall, I met a fascinating group. I met a Bay Area brick expert, also a brick museum owner for Remillard Bricks, and another person, their volunteer historian. We met at the High Horse to have the building's brick and the seawall examined. I have more to say, but I'll need to get into that visit in my next episode, as I need to wrap up this part of Yerba Buena history. The little bridge that could once had a plaque at the corner of Montgomery and Jackson Street commemorating San Francisco's first civic improvement. But for reasons I don't know, the plaque was removed and never replaced. Now you just need to know about the bridge and the saltwater lagoon when you walk by Montgomery at Jackson to acknowledge its previous existence. You can consider yourself a part of a small club. As for Alpheus Basil Thompson during the 2006-2013 excavation, the research team recovered a branding iron with a T that is on display at the Battery at 717 Battery Street, the exclusive invitation-only social club. Could Thompson had guessed that his hide house would go on to become an exclusive club catering to San Francisco's next gold rush, the tech boom. It seems time lets people and places fade into the past, both Thompson's Cove and the footbridge. They seem like small flashes in San Francisco's past, but in both examples, they provide the foundation for something bigger. There's a synergy, an interconnectedness here. Everyone collectively needed Thompson's Cove for the commerce coming from the water. Thompson's Cove needed the footbridge for their residents to get to the point of commerce. And El Pueblo de Yerba Buena needed the footbridge and Thompson's Cove to become California's liveliest port which the United States has every intention of acquiring. In my next episode, I will relay more information about the seawall and the meeting with the brick expert and the group. Today's transcripts with cited sources can be located at monkeyblocksf.buzzsprout.com. You can also search for monkeyblocksf on Facebook or Twitter. Please bookmark this podcast to be alerted 
when new episodes are released. Thank you for listening. This is Monkey Block, retelling forgotten stories from San Francisco's Golden Past. <laughs>